Welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. Today, Chad sits down with Michelle Zatlin, co-founder and chief operating officer of Cloudflare. Cloudflare is a mission-driven company focused on helping to build a better internet. Today, the company services more than 1 billion unique IPs a day as they strive to build an internet that is faster and more importantly, secure. Michelle was an immediate rock star in the tech world, founding Cloudflare right after graduating from Harvard, along with her two co-founders in 2009. Michelle was one of the key reasons Cloudflare so quickly grew into a billion-dollar company and was most recently the face of Cloudflare when they rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange, going public last month. On this episode of Mission Daily, Michelle shares the origin story of Cloudflare, the importance and process of helping to build a better internet, and what it's like coming from Canada and competing in the U.S. market. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Michelle, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for hosting us. Uh, The office is gorgeous. It's right down the street from our new office. So this is great. It's exciting to have you here. You're a co-founder, COO of Cloudflare. Uh, If we were to just meet casual conversation, you know, how do you describe your role in the company? Uh, Well, I started Cloudflare nine years ago. I'm our COO. And uh, I always say that Cloudflare's mission is to help build a better internet. And and when when people are like, what does that mean? Our customers are internet properties. So websites, apps, APIs, blogs, anything connected online, they can use Cloudflare and we help make sure we protect our customers from cybersecurity attacks, uh, make sure they have global performance around the world, and they're always online. And so it's been nine years. And uh, in those nine years, we have over two million customers who have signed up for the service and everyone from nonprofits, uh, organizations like the Trevor Project or you know the Women's Global March to small businesses, to entrepreneurs around the world, uh, to big companies, 10% of the Fortune 1000 like L'Oreal, Starbucks. Um, and so it's been, it's been quite the ride. Very cool. And I'm curious in the early days of the company, every company has an origin story. Uh, what's that story like? It's not, it's never just one idea or insight. What, are, what is that idea or insights or collection of them that led you to start Cloudflare? Sometimes I think that the Cloudflare story is almost like a fairy tale. In many ways, it's what Silicon Valley is made out of. Uh, so we started Cloudflare. The, the Cloudflare origin story goes back to being students. We were doing our MBAs um, at Harvard Business School out in Boston. And one of my classmates that I kind of knew from from school had done something uh, before business school uh, with our third co-founder, Lee, called Project Honeypot. And Project Honeypot helped track web spammers online. And this was back in the 2000s. And he was just really proud of this initiative, this open source community-based project that they had created. And uh, Matthew was my classmate's name. He was always really proud of Project Honeypot. And and finally, we kind of had this conversation of, Matthew, you always talk about Project Honeypot. What is it? And he said, it's a community-based service that helps track web spammers online. I said, oh, okay. How many websites have signed up for it? He's like 80,000. And I thought (laughs) that sounded like a lot of people. I thought 80,000 for a community-based, no budget kind of shoestring project. I thought, wow, how did they hear about you? He's like, well, they talk about it on, you know, different forums online and tell each other. And I was like, okay, what do they get for signing up? He's like, well, they help install honeypots on their websites to help track the malicious behavior. And all that information comes back to Project Honeypot. And I thought, okay, and then what do you do with that? He's like, well, we work with the law enforcement agencies to go find the bad actors to help get them offline. 
And I thought, doesn't that take a long time? He said, yes, years. And then I went back to like, why does anyone use your service? And it was through that banter back and forth that he said, one day they want to create a service using that threat data that actually stops the malicious actors. And that was kind of the aha. I did not know a lot about web spammers or cybersecurity attacks online, but as I started to spend more time working on this with Matthew at school and Lee, this idea was like, wow, there's a real problem there. Um, There weren't good solutions. It was really ripe for a technical solution. And next thing I knew, we entered the business plan competition at at business school. We won. And the next thing I knew, we were packing our things up in a U-Haul and driving it across from Boston to San Francisco. And we showed up here in the summer of 2009 to see if we could make our idea a reality. And now... You know, here we are 1,200 people later, lots of customers around the world doing exactly that, making the internet faster, safer, and more reliable. So cool. And I'm curious to know in the early days when you're on that road trip, when you're coming out here, when you get here, what's that experience like? You know, do you have warm intros to everyone? Are you getting cold intros? Doors getting slammed? What's going on? I've been now in the Bay Area for 10 years and and it's really easy to become cynical, but like there are some really, and, and the Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley is not perfect at all, but there's some things that are just so incredible about this place. I mean, we literally showed up knowing nobody. Uh, we were not, we did not have reputations. We did not have uh, a lot of connections. Uh, but the couple connections we had, like they made introductions to people they knew. And the one great thing about the Bay Area is people will meet you. Yeah. Right. You don't. Doesn't matter what your Rolodex looks like or what your last name is. Yep. Or but they're like, if if someone says, hey, you should really meet Chad. You should really yeah. meet Michelle. You should really meet Matthew. They're like, okay, and they'll they'll meet you for coffee and take the meeting. And I think that openness is uh, a real strength of the Bay Area and Definitely. one that does not exist in a lot of places in the world. And so I think yeah. that's very special. The other thing when we showed up that was just like so interesting is that people here are all working to build. What you kind of hang out at night and when you're at the bar, you go to parties, everyone's talking about what they're working on, what they're trying to build, these ideas. And and it's really, people are ambitious and it's empowering. It doesn't mean it always works out, but that's what people spend their time talking about, which again, when where the cities I'd lived in before, that wasn't what people spent their time right. talking about. So I think those are two really unique aspects and and served us well as we, as we built Cloudflare here. And I'd love to focus in on that aspect that makes Silicon Valley unique, which is, you know, people being willing to take meetings, people being willing to talk about ideas that are maybe difficult to talk about or things like that. Uh, When I was, you know, before I came here, I was in DC and it was a culture of, this is my network. I'm not introducing you to everyone. It's difficult to talk about sci-fi. Like there's so many topics that just don't get brought up. So what was the culture like in Boston and how did you adjust to the culture out here? How did you, you know, learn how to help it or make it work for you instead of against you. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say Boston. I actually grew up in Canada. So I I grew up in Saskatchewan, but I spent a lot of time in Montreal and Toronto before I came here. And so, and I had lived in Boston and New York, but it was really, I was a student in Boston and that was great. But it was really, if I think about my time in Toronto, which I love, it's a great city and it's exploding on the tech scene today. Whether it's good or bad, tech and innovation really fuels the Bay Area. And so 80% of the conversations here are fueled around that. These other cities like New York, Toronto are much more diversified. You know, there's big banking, there's banking, there's a lot of other industries. And so the innovation piece is actually just some small sliver. And, And so you might have 10 conversations and maybe two people care. Right. And the other eight are just not really like that banking. interested. Right. They're they couched just, in innovation, but it's right. really just a banking company. They like that, or they want to talk about the Raptors or the Maple Leafs or whatever it is. And that and that's awesome. Sure. Here, 
eight out of your 10 conversations, people want to know more and who can they introduce you to. And actually, that's what ends up driving a lot of people to leave because they find over time that's very annoying where they're like, actually, I want I, I need more diversity. But it is something that makes it easy. I think it is very helpful for people who are in that camp of I'm trying to build something, I'm trying to to, to, to push something forward, to be surrounded with people like that who say, okay, well, how can I help you achieve that? Versus two in 10 conversations being helpful and the other eight being like, oh, I don't really get what you're doing. And, or am I, I'm not really interested in hearing what you're doing. Yeah. And so I think that that, that, that was a big difference. Um, the other thing that was, that was different, and this is less of a Boston versus San Francisco, but I would say more, um, again, as, as a Canadian here, the U S is just such a big market and it's such a competitive place and people really are, are very ambitious. That is unlike a lot of other places in the world. And I noticed that when I first came down to the U.S. from Canada, where Canada's amazing, but it's more like, let's get along and like, let's build it together. Here, people want to win. Right. And that does take an adjustment if you're not from, and in in the Valley, it's not only do you want to win, it's I want to build something really, really big. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I want to, it's like helping 1 million people isn't really considered cool here. It's how do you help 100 million? And now, you know, now it's like, oh, how do you help 200 million or 500 million? And then, you know, the bar keeps getting higher and higher over time, which again is both incredibly exciting, but also has downsides. I think it also drives a lot of people Definitely. to leave. Yeah. And so that's an interesting point too, because I think hyper competition has this aspect where it just snuffs out people's dreams and it happens very slowly. Uh, and then non-competitive markets and blue oceans or whatever you want to call them, right? They're more fun to be in. So how do you think about that as you're you know, managing all the operations and the people? How do you kind of steer the company towards those blue oceans and stay away from nightmares? I meet a lot of entrepreneurs. Having built Cloudflare for nine years, I I get to meet a lot of amazing entrepreneurs who are kind of at different stages, either ahead of me or behind me. And, you know, one, one piece of advice that I, that someone shared with us early on that I think we really took to heart that's been true and that I continue to carry forward as a piece of advice is if you're going to build a company, have a mission. It's yeah. so interesting because we're here with mission.org. So you have a really good uh, domain name. Route. Yeah, oh, exactly. it's just the meta mission. But I do think um, people, humans, especially today, want to be part of something. Agreed. Yeah. And it's, there are a lot of jobs in the Bay Area, a lot. But I go to, I, and I interview a lot of people and people are like, I want to work at a place where I'm proud of the work I'm doing, where I'm passionate about it, which is another thing, which is another way of saying, what, what, what is your mission as a business? Can I get passionate or interested in yeah. that? And so back to your question, I think that this sense of trying to build something where you're like, okay, this is what we're trying to achieve as a, as a company that, that, and our mission is to help build a better internet. And early on people came to work for us or find funded us like from a financing to investing standpoint, customers came and signed up for our service because of that, because of that mission. And it stays true today. And I think that it's one of these things where if you went and just randomly asked people around the Cloudflare office after this interview, why do you work at Cloudflare? It would definitely be one of their top three reasons. I think the other two things they would say are, I love my colleagues and, and it feels like a team. And so that that's, that's amazing. So I think that as an entrepreneur, it's not just solving the business problem. You have to solve a problem, a meaningful, meaningful problem for your customers, but like, what's your overarching mission as a company? And those are the companies that I think end up being very enduring and, and do really amazing things. Definitely. And they're always the ones too, where the customers have an easy way to talk about it. Cause you're not, if the product is too complex or it's not 
you know, it only works 90% of the time. It's not going to get recommended, but if you can get a heartfelt recommendation, which is how, I mean, I became aware of Cloudflare. It was, you know, a technical person who had been CIO of a large company was like, yeah, you're getting a DDoS attack because of this. And like, you need to get serious about this. So I guess I'm trying to segue into what's the current state of cybersecurity on the internet? Obviously it's uh, a rabbit hole and we can go like as far as we want, but what does the average like, you know, website owner, small business, or maybe, you know, a C-level person at an enterprise right now, you know, what do you, what do they need to know? What's your kind of like briefing for them? Today, if you have anything connected to the internet, which many, many people and businesses do, you are very exposed to different cybersecurity threats. And it's not just the big companies or the governments that are getting attacked. It's small businesses, it's individuals. And, you know, your story, it's kind of like, why why are they attacking mission.org? You're two, just like, we're two years old. Two we're years trying- in, it's a dot org. Come on. Right. Like <laughs> it go, is a for-profit you- company, but it's like a yeah regular website. It's this thing where it, it impacts people and businesses and all size of businesses, whether you're a nonprofit to a large organization. So that, that, that's kind of the state. And that's very uh, violating as a business owner and stressful because you're like, okay, well, I, I'm here to build podcasting and make that accessible and that content. And now I have to worry about a cybersecurity threat who's trying to like in an adversary standing in front of me. Like that's not why I got into this business. Sure. So one thing that I will say today versus even five years ago is the solutions are way better. And I mean, Cloudflare, I'm really proud of the work we're doing because I think that we help really solve this for our customers. So of these 2 million customers, we have both free and paying customers who use Cloudflare every day we stop 44 billion with a B cyber attacks on, on their behalf. Wow. And you're like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And we're a relatively still young company and our customers don't have to worry about it anymore because part of it, or sorry, they have to worry less about it. That's, that's not, that's probably too strong with cybersecurity. You're never hundred percent protected. The idea is that as cloud has become more prevalent and computing power has become really more powerful, actually cybersecurity becomes a really great candidate to be solved from a technical solution using cloud AI solutions. And that's what Cloudflare is. And we've been doing that for the last you know, nine years. We, we run this very globally distributed global cloud platform, and we leverage all of the data across all of our customers to help provide the best cybersecurity solutions for all of those customers. So it's almost like a neighborhood watch. Every new customer we gain helps protect all the other customers using Cloudflare too. And so the attacker that you saw from mission.org, like that now helps protect somebody else on our network because we saw that attack vector, for example. Um, and so it's very powerful, which is great. And we're not the only ones doing this, but it's it's this idea of taking it from businesses used to try and solve it each individually saying, no, no, let's Let's band together mm-hmm. and use a collective resource and share the collective data now with AI to be able to do all that machine learning and algorithms. And, and again, cloud computing allows us to enable all of this. I think that's been great. So it's hard as a business owner to get today, but I think there are the solutions. And, you know, I was talking to somebody earlier today, like I think seven years from now, you know, our goal at Cloudflare is to have solved this problem for the internet you know, like majority solved it. Like, yeah. I think we're going to be in such a better place seven years from now. And so to get from here to there, you have to take it seriously. And some businesses are further along than others, but progress is getting made. And I, again, I think five, seven years from now, we'll be in a much better place as an internet. Sure. And I'm sure threats are going to evolve and look new and there's going to be brand new things to combat. So there's, it's definitely a market where there's no shortage of excitement. I'm curious, where do you get your information and a lot of the you know, do you have a professional development routine? Are you reading like Cult of the Dead Cow? What kind of books are you 
um, reading these days. From a cybersecurity standpoint, you know, we are, are we leverage the, the the data from all of our customers to help. Again, we have you know algorithms, machine learnings to to find patterns, saying, hey. This requ- this IP that's coming to mission.org and then going to one of our other customers' site a, a fraction of seconds later is not a typical human behavior of this looks like a bot. Gotcha. Or is this person coming to the site legitimate or is it is it a bot? So we do a lot of things on that side and, and it's great. And when, we, when a new attack comes out that we don't know about, we often get advanced r- warning because we have so many customers and we're able to patch it for our customers. So it's that's how we're making the internet better. So that's great. In terms of what I'm reading, I mean, that's... I read a lot of different things. Again, I love that we help make the internet safer, but it's just one of a small group of things that we do for our customers. You know, we also make things faster, more reliable, and, and make it easy to adopt new standards. And so what I'm reading these days is the new Melinda Gates book. Um, I've recently read Michelle Obama's Becoming book, which was just absolutely, I love that, Whether whatever your politics are. I just thought it was a great story about being a, a working professional, sure. um, a mother, uh, what it's like to kind of, think that a dream is never going to happen. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're the first lady of the, the United States. And and it's a, very much a fairy tale story as well. So there's actually a lot of parallels to, I think, starting a company that actually really takes off. You, yeah. you never know, kind of becomes out of your control at some point. And, and the good and bad, like the struggles that come, both the opportunity and the struggles. So I thought that was really interesting. I just got the new Bill McDermott book, who, you know, who he's... Uh, has been the CEO of SAP for the last uh, many years. Oh, okay, he just gotcha. stepped down and now he's going to run ServiceNow and John Chambers oh, wow. from ServiceNow cool. is going to go to Nike. There's kind of like a whole CEO swap recently. So uh, I just started to read his book. So I have a couple of different things going on, different dimensions. I love it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Outside of books, is there any maybe new form of media you're enjoying, whether it's like podcast or, you know, an original series or VR or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Well, so I read a lot for tech as an entrepreneur. I actually think reading, the rate at which you learn is actually your greatest asset. The founders who have a really high rate of learning are actually end up being the best founders, in my opinion. And so I read all the time. I read a lot of much more short form content. And so um, I know you recently had him on your show, uh, Jason Lumpkin. I yeah. mean, I think if you're building a SaaS, any <laughs> any entrepreneur should just follow Jason Lumpkin. I mean, he's yeah, like a try, gold mine. And try to get around him in person too, because I think that level of intensity is something that it, it's good to be around, right? Because sometimes you've never seen somebody that's like that fired up about something. And Exactly. And he fun. just is a gift to every entrepreneur out there. <laughs> I mean, his insight on how to get to the first million in revenue, how to get to the first 10 million, then, okay, 10 million to 100 million. I just, there aren't very many. There are a couple other people writing about it, yeah. but it's just so current and he knows B2B SaaS incredibly well. Uh, he knows consumer a little bit less, but a lot of his topics, both for the entrepreneurs and then early stage employees, I just think make you feel like this is super helpful. So, and, and that's short form. So I I love, I love, I love reading what he, what what he's doing. I listen to some podcasts, so it's great. Again, uh, mission.org, which is great. Um, my husband runs, helps podcasts with his service. So he's always on Right. My husband helps run, runs a company called sonics.ai, which transcribes all of the audio to text. Um, and so a lot of podcasters use his service. And so he's always telling me about all the cool, I kind of have my own search, uh, recommendation finder through, through my husband. So that's great. Uh, so those are some of the different things that, that I'm doing. Cool. I'm a big Twitter. I spend a lot of time. I, I find that there's some really great content on Twitter. People I agree. kind of going back to open. It's one thing to meet people in person, but people also share their thoughts online. And 
you, you can almost, these people almost become your mentors. You don't even need to know them. Right. And in so much of the short form content too, it's easy to remember. It's more of like a heuristic, right? Because a lot of Lemkin stuff, I can remember back in the early days, Ian, my other co-founder and I, we'd just be like in our garage recording stuff and repeating because we only had one client at the time. We closed Salesforce and we're like, I think every enterprise will want 10 to 20 of these things that were these sponsorships that we're selling. It was a hypothesis. People thought it was like dumb, but we just went around repeating. Like if you get, get one, you can get two. If you get, get two, you can get 10. Um, but those type of like short form heuristics are awesome. They're awesome. And yeah. when you're building a company, which is very hard, yes. again, so if you're an entrepreneur <laughs> listening to this and you think, man, this is so hard, it's hard for everybody. And yeah. sometimes you just need that little okay, yeah, I have yeah. one customer. Okay, great. Now I'm just going to get my second. Yep. And and it's just kind of one foot after another. And and sometimes you just, I used to, what I used to say when we were, again, we're, we're 1,200 people today, so a little bit further along. But when we used to be a lot smaller, what I used to say was earlier in the company life uh, stages, what I used to say was one conversation or like one little insight like that could just dramatically change the course yep. of your company. Yeah. It goes from thinking like, oh, this is a fluke. They're just, they felt bad for us or whatever to wait, maybe not. And uh, so take us back to like 2009, 2010, were there any, you know, first key clients? Was there a collection of them? Was it an investor? Um, what was a big inflection point early on? So we showed up here um, in the U-Haul. Uh, it was actually Matt, to be fair, it was Matthew and his mother who drove the U-Haul from Boston to San Francisco. So just think to yourself, would I draw, drive a U-Haul across the country with my mother? That's what he did um, which with my stuff in it, which was very nice. I flew here, which was... Which, like anyway, I think I'm not. You can decide who got the who got the better end of that stick. But I'm uh, super grateful. So we showed up here, and I think that some of the initial inflection points that mattered a lot. First is we had this idea, and you have to kind of decide: is there actually a company around this idea? Like, is it? Are you solving a meaningful problem that people care about? And I just remember early on, you know, we had, it was so hard to get our first 10 customers, very hard to get our first hundred customers, like very hard. I used to keep track every day. Like it was not, you know, today we sign up thousands and thousands a day, but the first hundred customers took months because it's hard to yeah. get those first customers. We really were hustling. And so we didn't really have data to look at because we only had 10 or 15 or 20 customers. Right. It's hard to have very many. It's certainly not statistically significant, but Early on, some of the qualitative feedback that our customers would give, um, I remember there was one um, customer of ours who wrote back saying, oh my God, like my pager, I used to get woken up every night at two in the morning because some cron job would knock over my server and I'd get paged. I put Cloudflare in front of my site two days ago and for the last two nights, I've actually been able to sleep through the night the first time in five years and the first two times in five years. And they're like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it was such a, like a, it was a qualitative piece of feedback, but you're just Definitely. like, wow, we're solving. I didn't think about that particular use case when we were building our problem. We were trying to say, okay, how do you stop the, the, the bad bots from taking, stealing resources from your server? But this was an example of what that translated to them. And I think those gave us um, fuel to both go recruit the next engineer we need to recruit. We could talk about that in the interview process. Sure. We could use that anecdote when we were talking to investors. And I think that solving meaningful problems that people are willing to share, oh my God, this has actually profoundly impacted me. Yeah. Was really, really helpful early on in those early days and, and kept giving us the fuel to keep saying, okay, send the next 10 emails because- 
maybe only one of those are converting. Yeah. So the data looks bad, but the ones that are converting, they're really liking the service, right? And, and then, and, and keep making uh, progress against that. So early on that mattered a ton for us. And then the second, I think I would say is we had this vision of Cloudflare of helping take resources that a lot of the internet giants have, uh, you know, google.com, an amazing uh, internet property that's always online. And they employ a lot of people to make sure that's the case. And how do you create that as a service for everybody else, the rest of the world, because most people don't have the technical expertise that Google can hire. That was what we kind of how we thought about it early on. And I just remember meeting some of these investors and like some investors were like, I want to be part of this because I believe it will help make the internet like a better place mm-hmm. and, and more of a fair playing field. And so I think having that kind of big picture early on, we didn't quite use the the mission of helping to build a better internet that came a little bit later, but we were able to describe this, what we saw and that led us to raise some money early on, which then made, gave, gave us some resources to be able to go a little bit faster and hire people and engineers and whatnot to get a little bit of an office space sure. to, to make further. So it was those two things. I think some of the capital up front, which, you know, Silicon Valley is so well known for. I just remember we raised $2 million and which today sounds like a little bit of money back to late 2009. It was a lot of money. And I just, I remember thinking we show up here, no one knows us. We have an idea. We have a working prototype and someone's going to give us $2 million to go see if we can make it happen. Like there's just not very many places in the world no. where that happens. No, now without a personal guarantee and people coming to collect. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're Right. Exactly. And, and they're like, yeah, let's go see. And they're like, great, let's see what you can do with it. And you're yeah. just like, I, I, I remember Matthew's dad was just like, they're going to give you how much money? Because it just seems like a little yeah. bit anywhere else. You're like, that doesn't make any no, sense. People back in Maryland were just like, that's a scam. And like early employees, their parents were like, is what is this MLM or something? I'm like, no, please don't. Please don't say that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because you just exactly because it's, it's but that's what has made the Valley yeah. a really special place. And so I think those two things married together were initial feedback from our customers, plus some some capital to help us get going. This Cloudflare was not a business we could finance with our credit cards. Sure. And revenue came later, not early. There's some businesses where it comes earlier, which are amazing businesses and ours, it was not like that. So how do you build the capacity for patience during the time, you know, where you're pre-revenue, where you know that you have to, you're basically making like a negative carry trade for a long time and it's mm-hmm. not pleasant. Mm-hmm. So what, what was that like, you know, going through that period where you're burning money, trying to get to wherever you're at revenue wise and product wise to grow? Yeah, this is one thing that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, but I think as a founder, you get to pick the metrics you want to measure. And what I always say is pick like a few, you don't need two, maybe five. We had five. You can be four or five. I mean, three, four, five, some, I think 10 is too many. So kind of some reasonable number and pick metrics that move, that change. So for us, we knew revenue was going to be slower to come because we had to build a global network before we could go get a lot of revenue for it. So that wasn't really a great first metric to pick because it was going to move slowly. Right. You know, we have a had a free service and a $20 a month service. That's amazing. But it's $20. It takes a lot of $20 a month to really move the needle on revenue. So anyhow, so we didn't use that early on. We looked at it, but it wasn't one of the measures measures of success that we used. Um, and again, I think as an entrepreneur, you have a lot of, you, you actually can pick the metrics that matter for your business. And that's what we did. And so we picked ones that moved. And so for example, one, I'll give you an example. Uh, really early on, we, we don't use this anymore because it doesn't make sense today, but it did make sense back when we were eight people working on Cloudflare, was number of page views 
being powered by Cloudflare's global cloud platform. And so the idea was, you know, if one site signed up and they got 10,000 page views. Yeah, you get an accurate CAC. I can see that you're right. going to be able to build that. And yeah. Right. So can you service that, value. right? Like yeah. how many page views were we servicing through this, this service we were building? And, and how, how fast is the internet growing? How many new websites are coming online? Exactly. So it was a good metric because there was a, you know, one site might sign up with 10,000 and the next day another site might sign up and they had 500,000 page views. So that metric actually didn't grow linearly with the number of net new customers signing up for Cloudflare. Yeah. And it was an important metric for us because we had to deliver, we had to service those page views. So there was an operational component to it, but it was also changing quickly. And so um, I think it helped take into account scaling needs and and to and helped communicate how quickly we were growing because revenue did not look like that early on. And right. so that's an example of a metric that we picked early on that, again, we we retired it after the first four years, but for the first four years, we it was, you know, the first slide of every board deck, that's what we looked at and, sure. and was important for our business. And so entrepreneurs have a lot, if, if you have revenue up front that's growing quickly, it should definitely be on there. Like today, that's the, you know, we look at revenue per employee. We think that's a really interesting metric, but um, an important metric. I agree. I think that's fascinating. Right. Because you yeah. want to hire at a certain rate and, and whatnot. And stop defining into like companies by, oh, this is tech, this is media, this is traditional or whatever. And just how are you performing? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you have early revenue, that's a great metric. If you don't, that's a bad metric because it just, <laughs> it's going to be like negative, sure. right? Or zero. It's actually going to be zero for a long time or just look really, really off. And I just don't think it tells you anything. Right. And so you have to find metrics that matter a lot for you. The other one that we cared a lot about was on the cost side because we wanted to be able to be very efficient in how we deliver our service and, you know, how much it costs us to service our customers up front. We were like, okay, we have to drive these costs down. And today, you know, just I think that decision up front of us being monatical my, my about this idea, we have to be able to deliver a bite of traffic for the lowest cost basis possible because we had this free service and $20 a month service. You know, today we have... I don't know, north of 70, 77% gross margins, which is which is really good for a business like ours. But that's because of a decision we made nine years ago. Yeah. And that type of delayed gratification is something that is, it's easy to say, hard to do. Uh, when you were going through that process of just like delaying revenue, uh, at what point did you realize, okay, now's the time to turn it on? You know, you go through that four years, you recruit key engineers, maybe did you raise another round or... Yes, we we uh, before we went public, we had raised um, over three hundred million in venture. Um, now we just raised about five hundred twenty-five million when we went public, so almost a billion in, in capital at this point. I've raised, but before it was a lot of venture, three hundred. Sure. So we had two million, then twenty, and and so on. In that process, like yes. as as you're raising money, were you sold on an IPO right away, or were you was like that? Is that the direction? Is that yeah, just curious to know what are, uh, what's your thought on it. Yeah, well, going public is just another financing event. Right. Um, so no, it was never it was, it's never been the end goal ever. But what was the end goal early on was we knew that Cloudflare will either be a big company or not exist as a company. It does not make sense as a medium sized business because you have to build like we run. Cloudflare has points of presence in 194 cities around the world, and when I say we have a point of presence, it's like we have hardware that we've bought. Um, routers, servers, switches that sit in 194 cities around the world. And because if you're um, on vacation in Cape Town, South Africa, going to a site using an internet property using Cloudflare, you'll hit Cloudflare's point of presence in Johannesburg, um, South Africa. And 
that makes the experience better and more reliable for people, legitimate people in, in Cape Town. Or if you're uh, a malicious bot coming out of Cape Town, it gets stopped right in Johannesburg. So it never sees the business's server and maybe they're, I don't know, hosting at AWS East in Ashburn, like it, it, back in the United States, for example, Ashburn, Virginia, back in the United States. So it, stop, it starts much more closer to where they, where the either person or the malicious activity is happening. Right. We knew we wanted to build a global network and we had to be close to where people were connecting online. So we had to be very spread out around the world. That costs money. There's like, we have a real CapEx expense to our business and we had to be in lots of places to make this happen. Um, so we knew this early on. And so that makes sense if you have a lot of people using the services and you can get paid for a lot of that. If, if you have a lot of businesses signing up, right. you're like, okay, if you can, if, you, if it's a, if it's a resource that a lot of people use, then it's a good business. If no one uses it, then you're not like only if a few people use it, it's not a good niche business right. is a way to kind of, I guess, think about it. So we knew early on it'd be big. It could, would either be big or not exist. And so we were very encouraged in the early days by a lot of the traction and, and, and then eventually over time, how businesses were willing, able to adopt it and pay for it. And so for us going public was never, it's just another financing event. It's right. just one step. And I still think you know, I, I I say this internally all the time. It's kind of become my my I'm known for it. And I we said it in the roadshow video, the very last thing. It's like, and we're just getting started. Like I think it's just like a very early chapter in Cloudflare's history book. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more because I mean, 194 cities. How many more? Are there's many, many more cities in emerging markets and everywhere. Uh, Michelle, when you are running into somebody, whether it's a small, medium, or large size business, I'm curious if they're having problems that Cloudflare could solve? How do you how do you talk about it? And is there a simple breakdown or how do you pitch the product? One third of the time a customer comes with some sort of security need. They say, hey, we are worried about getting hacked. We're knocked offline because of a DDoS attack. Or, hey, there's this new software vulnerability and we're not protected from it. Um, and can you help? And the answer is yes, we can help. We have a firewall, we have a DDoS solution. We have a lot of different security solutions that help protect our customers from a range of cybersecurity attacks. And so that, that's about a third of the time that how we talk to customers, they they have, they, they feel exposed from a security standpoint or they were breached and, and they're like, okay, now we have to go figure out how we're going to protect ourselves going forward. So we help that. Other times it's a customer says, um, I was talking to an entrepreneur recently. She was building a company. She's based in Singapore. It was a mobile app service. And she's like, my app was so terribly slow. And someone said, sign up for Cloudflare. I use your service. And now it's fast everywhere. My users were in Taiwan and Korea and wow, you've like made my service so much faster. And plus I get this peace of mind because of the security. I feel like now, like, and I, I, I've seen my users like rate grow because it's actually functioning like people would, a, one of her customers would expect. And so, yeah. you know, mobile performance, uh, any company that has any, any startup or nonprofit or company that has visitors that are very global, a service like Cloudflare just will make it a lot faster. Sure. Like, we have lots of stats that say like, if you weren't using anything before, it'll be twice as fast, which you definitely notice. If you were using something before, you mean, you'll see a lift of probably somewhere between 20 and 35% based on what you were using before. And so that's that's really powerful. And then there's a third of customers who come for um, some sort of reliability need where they're like an e-commerce store, Black Friday's coming up and they're like, I'm really worried about staying online during that. Mm-hmm. How can you help give me redundancy and reliability? Uh, you talked about celebrities using, you know, you being connected to those. When a musician is about to launch a new tour date, they get a flood of traffic to their site. It's actually really hard from a reliability standpoint to solve that. Mm-hmm. Cloudflare makes that easy because you 
can distribute the load and you have great load balancing built in. And so we have a bunch of customers who come for that need. Um, so, so that's great. The, uh, the two areas that I'm most excited about. And so we have lots of customers who come for these performance security reliability needs. And it's like, Everyone has that. Every size yep. of business wants to be more fast, more reliable, more, more secure. So it's great. You know, two of the areas that I'm so excited about with Cloudflare is as an employee, I've never liked a corporate VPN that my companies as an like as an employee that I've ever had to use. Like they're cl- clunky, they're slow, like they never work. Mm-hmm. It's, especially when I'm traveling, it's just like can't get on the v- VPN. So I can't look up the documents, slow. And so Cloudflare launched something called Access. And we use it here. So I, and out of all of our products, it's the one that I, that has made the most difference in my life because as a executive here, I can now get behind the corporate VPN. It's like magic. It's fast everywhere around the world, whether I'm in the Cape town, South Africa, or I was just in DC yesterday, or, you know, I'm going to, to Lisbon in, in two weeks. It's, it's magical. And Nobody likes their corporate VPN until you've met Access and then people love it. And so I think that's something I'm really excited about. And we have a lot of customers who, both startups and big companies who like, again, no one likes the corporate VPN. They start to use Access and then they really adopt it. And they see a huge decrease in support tickets internally. Like one customer saw a 90% decrease of internal support tickets after they ran their Access pilot. That's a big drop. Like you wow. notice that. Yeah. And so those are the things where you're like, that makes you come back up and want to come back to work tomorrow. So you're like, okay, there's something here. And then the last thing, plus, which is, is a, is, sorry, just to yeah, jump in. No, like if you're a really talented engineer too, like you are only going to work for a company that delivers a result like that. Cause you're going to be hanging out with peers from all your other companies. So that's, and, yeah, that's incredible. And where you can collaborate and say, Hey, this isn't working. It's, it's awesome. And the yeah. last thing that I'm super excited about talking about engineers, which is this idea of um, serverless computing, which is people used to code on on-premise hardware servers. And then, they use a lot of cloud computing today, like Google Cloud or Azure, AWS, and obviously those businesses are growing really, really well and quickly. But there are some applications where doing it at the cloud, at a at a centralized cloud point, is still too far away. So what can you move out to the edge for edge computing? Hmm. And you know we're again in 194 cities around the world. So can you take some of those computing tasks that you would typically do on a Again, GCP, Azure, um, AWS instance, and say, well, how do I move that closer to the person actually connecting? And so we have something called Workers. It's based in Go and JavaScript and Rust and a bunch of different programming languages. And you can basically program whatever you want out at the edge. And it's really amazing the problems it's solving for our customers. And so it's very early innings. But for the technical, for the engineers, like you talked about that, like people are like, this is amazing because it's too slow on the server side and getting people to install things on the client side is also hard. Distribution of that is hard. How do you get, you know, users to download the app? It's hard. And so to say there's a third place to write code now is super interesting. Definitely. And when it comes to recruiting engineers or key executives, we're in the Bay Area. Not yes. easy. Yes. A, little, a little difficult. Any advice there? Uh, any stories that you want to share about you know, how to recruit, retain and nurture talent? I think that, the you know, this is one of those things where some people are really, really good at it. And if you're good at this, then you have a huge leg up to other um, entrepreneurs out there. Some people are not good at it. It's great if this is something that you're good at, um, because at the end of the day, it's all about people. It doesn't matter how good your idea is. It doesn't matter how no. great your yeah. mission is. If you can't assemble a group of people rowing in the same direction, you will not get to where you're going. And, you know, early on, Matthew Lee and I spent a lot of time recruiting. We were our recruiters uh, because 
people come to work for you, not the recruit, not, not a recruiter, right? Yeah. They come to work for their manager. Uh, today we have a great recruiting team, but our hiring managers today are still, they spend 20, 25% of their time recruiting for their teams and are expected to be heavily involved because again, people come want to come work for their managers. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is one of those places where you just can't outsource it. You can work with ex- executive recruiters to help with the process or with house with help sourcing the candidates. But at the end of the day, it's you own the process as a manager. Right. They don't own the process. And I think that that's some businesses, some entrepreneurs do this great and some do it less great. If you're in the less great camp, if you can get better at it, it will serve you well. And if you're great at it, keep going. Cause it's a huge asset. I'm amazed both from a candidate perspective who will say, oh, it just was like a terrible experience. And they all talk. Yeah. So it's it's better if they have a good experience. Completely agree. And when it comes to the Bay Area's future, mm-hmm. um, are you based here? Are you, I mean, I'm sure you have a home near the office, but what are you thinking about for the future of like San Francisco for the Bay Area? Anything you're really excited about, worried about? I mean, the Bay Area is so special. And it's not, so again, it's, it's been so good to us. We could not have built Cloudflare anywhere else 10 years ago. Like we really couldn't have. I think if you're starting a company today, it's not so clear that the Bay Area is the best place to start it. And that's sad for the Bay Area. It's great for other parts of the world. I mean, I actually think it's great for New York. It's great for Austin, Texas. It's amazing for Toronto, Canada. Like, I mean, these cities are the ones benefiting. The Bay Area is not what it used to be. It's it's so I so I have mixed feelings. Again, it's been great to us. I live here. We have um 500 over 500 people that are employed in our San Francisco offices and they're wonderful and people still around the world want to move here because it, it it is still the leader but it's not clear cut it's not as clear cut a leader as it was before yeah and especially if you're trying to keep costs under control like you mentioned earlier well cost I mean cost from a company standpoint but at the end of the day it's just like a very bad quality of life it's true. It's yeah. a bad quality of life for for everyone who lives here currently. It's very expensive. And so at the end of the day, if I want you, you asked about recruiting talent, you got to retain talent too. And you want people to be able to do the best work of their lives. And if they're stressed about, I can't afford a vacation or I can't afford the house and they're, you know, figuring out where am I going to live and how am I going to make rents versus being able to do their best work? Like that's yeah. not good either. So it's, I think it's a problem. And, and I think that they're kind of finger pointing, you know, the city in San Francisco points to the tech companies and the tech companies point to the city leadership. It's not clear what the path forward is, but I am definitely concerned. And uh, in the interim, a lot of these other cities like Austin and New York, and and I would say Toronto are really, they are benefiting. So we'll see whether it's a moment in time or what happens. But I think San Francisco needs to come together and say, we want to continue to be the place where companies come to build these amazing, innovative solutions. And we have to make it work as a city. And I think yeah. there is a path forward. Just that conversation is not quite happening yet. There's still a lot of finger pointing. So we got to get past that stage and start to come up with a path forward. Well said. Yeah. And, and, you know, okay. actually the last thing I've been thinking about this, this is my biggest problem. As an entrepreneur, we look for opportunities and it's hard to find our opportunities. Like there's lots of opportunities, whether they're good businesses, a whole nother thing yeah. and how you can matter, you can make it happen. And like, at the end of the day, this is my rub. San Francisco should be the best city in the world to live in. And it's not. And that is a failure of an opportunity. And that, and yeah. that as an entrepreneur just absolutely drives me nuts. Yeah. It's like Paul Graham says, if you outlaw the future here, it's just going to happen someplace else. And that's the history of innovation. But I, I'm still optimistic about the future. I think there's so many signs, though, that things could turn around here. Hopefully they do. 
Michelle, that last uh, answer was um, so articulate that it was uh, almost political. So we have election season coming up. Um, I know Cloudflare does a lot of election security and things like that. Is there anything on your radar for the next election to help keep things uh, more secure? Well, I think we everyone learned a lot from the last election how important technology is, both for good and bad. And one of the things that came out of the last election um, on the good side was actually, if you think about it, candidates who run in, in elections are almost like startups. They don't have a lot of resources. You're not sure how far they're going to get through. And to the last presidential election, 16 of the 17 candidates used Cloudflare to help be fast, safe, and reliable online, which is pretty awesome. And, and we're seeing a lot of the current candidates use our service, which is great. I love that. I love thinking of the political campaigns kind of as a startup is like, as they're going yeah. through, it's, it's, you kind of start to think about like that. You're like, it's pretty amazing how much risk they have to take and, and, and what they kind of start with nothing to create something. Uh, but on the flip side, this last election, we saw a lot of how tech was used in, in many ways for disinformation and, and bad sorts of things. Um, and, you know, Cloudflare provides infrastructure. So there's certain things we can do and th- certain things we can't do. But we we did out of the last election, we felt like, okay, we want to do more than we did. And so we created something called the Athenian Project. And the idea was if you are a state, local, or federal uh, election, and you're running the services around it. So where do you vote? Um, the results, all of those have internet facing properties. And if you actually think about it, if you think about it, okay, who runs that and how many resources do they have? It's a very small team that runs it, sometimes one person, and they have zero resources. And so we launched something called the Athenian Project to help basically say, we'll give you our enterprise grade service that Fortune 1000 companies spend hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars a year on for free. And we've had different, you know, the state of North Carolina, different states, Rhode Island, like lots of different states around um, the U.S. adopt it. And you talk to some of these, the, the IT professional who's the network, the person who's responsible for running these Internet properties. And the one gentleman, his exact quote was, I feel like it's me against nation state attackers and I'm all by myself and I have to figure out how to keep this site online through a nation state attacker and it's not fair. And and then they're like, okay, so I feel so much more like I have a service now with Cloudflare to help protect me. And I feel like I'm not alone. It's point back to kind of being a neighborhood watch con- community. So that's one thing we've done that, and what's been great is that both local and states have adopted it and, and are, we've seen it through a lot of the mid-year campaigns, different states have it's it's really worked. And again, they, they've they stayed online. There hasn't been any cybersecurity or reliability issues. And that matters a lot for building trust among yeah. in a democracy. Like if you feel like, oh my God, I go to look at the election results and the page isn't there because they're knocked offline because of an attack, that degrades trust. Big and time. so so these things matter. And so, you know, you still have to show up and vote. We don't do anything with that. But how do you register to vote? What, where you figure find out where the voting places are? What are the results? We help provide a lot of services through the Athenian project, and that's been amazing. So, though, I, and you know, Microsoft has done a lot. I think that Facebook has learned a lot from the last election, and they've been in the news a ton recently. And I heard Sheryl Sandberg interviewed earlier this week at the Vanity Fair, and her answer was something: "We are a in a imperfect, much stronger position." Than a couple than the last time around, and I know lots of people dislike Facebook, but I actually think that's probably a very articulate way to describe it—an imperfect, 
much stronger position. And so on, on, on that side, but that's, that's not our business. And, yeah. you know, that's just kind of a high level, but I do think there are some great things happening on the tech side from companies who have said, Hey, we want to give our services for free. And I know we've done a lot. Microsoft does a lot. And I think those things matter if they play one role in a much bigger picture and more companies should do more. Sure. Michelle, thank you so much for being generous with your time. This has been a blast. Um, we'll have to get you on for round two at some point and your husband's always welcome to come on. Uh, and we'll probably make the switch to Sonics if we uh, haven't already. So that sounds really cool. That's great. Are there any other questions, topics, or things that you just want to talk about? You know, the, the only th- other thing I would say is that if you're an entrepreneur early on, like keep going, I hope you're building something big. It's an amazing responsibility. And I think it's, it's, it's great to see people trying to do that. So keep going. Very That's cool. the only thing I would end on. And for anybody listening out there that wants to join, wants to help you with your mission, where should they reach out? Whether it's the jobs page, maybe they want to help support switch over to Cloudflare. Um, where's the best place to find you online? My Twitter, I, I love Twitter. So you can find me on LinkedIn at Michelle Zatlin, or you can find me on uh, Twitter at, at Zatlin, which is Z-A-T-L-Y-N. But you can also come to cloudflare.com. So cloud, C-L-O-U-D-F-L-A-R-E.com. And if you can't find me, that's where you can find Cloudflare. And we're always there. That's the first test. Can yes. you find them? Yeah, exactly. Thanks for listening, everyone. And Michelle, thank you so much. And congrats on everything you've achieved. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.